0: Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and we are returning after a long break to our special series on how Europe can live and thrive in Trump's world. This is an episode that's looking at the question of Trump in Asia. when we were planning this podcast had thought that we would be talking about a coming trade war with china the end of tpp and what kinds of relationships europeans might develop with asian countries to uphold the global order against china but trump has managed to surprise the world again with recent developments And to help us make sense of what Trump is doing and what Europe should do in response, we have three fantastic panellists. First up is Jeremy Shapiro, Research Director, ECFR and Resident uh, Interpreter-in-Chief of Donald Trump's Behaviour. Secondly, we have François Godemont, who is the head of ECFR's Asia program, joining us from Paris. And from Berlin, we have Angela Stanzl, who is an expert on Chinese foreign policy, also from the Asia program, who's worked particularly on China's role in Southeast Asia, sorry, in South Asia. So, Jeremy, why don't you tell us first what's going on with Donald Trump? Can you tell us what we thought we were going to hear from Trump and what's happened in the last few days?
1: Uh, I can try. I mean, I think that the fundamental thing about Trump, which is which is still true, is that we have we never have any idea what he's going to do. He has very few um, consistent positions. Uh, We have seen in the last um, 10 days or so a dramatic shift in in Trump's positions on a variety of issues, including on, uh, and perhaps most dramatically, actually, even more dramatically than on Syria, we've seen a change in his uh, position on China, apparently. Um, just, I guess it was today or yesterday, he he came out in a, in a newspaper interview and said that he was not going to label China a currency manipulator, which is a promise that he made roughly 3,000 times during the... Um, during the presidential campaign. He said he would do it on his first day in office. Uh, he said that he's discovered in recent months that China is no longer manipulating its currency. Of course, it hasn't actually manipulating, been manipulating its currency, at least downward, for several years. Um, he's also uh, apparently came out in, in the meeting with um, with the Chinese president. He, prom- he promised to, or he offered the Chinese president Trade concessions, some unspecified trade concessions, in return for Chinese help on North Korea. This is the exact opposite of the way that he framed the way he wanted to do deals in the campaign and in the early, in the early part of his presidency, when he said that uh, he, when he seemed to indicate that he would trade off geopolitical issues for, uh, for trade concessions from China. And I think that this probably reflects the, the sort of pressure he's under in North Korea. Uh, and, it, and so the North Korea issue has risen to the top of his agenda. It is a very frightening issue, both geopolitically and in American domestic politics. Uh, at the same time, I think we need to be a little bit careful in um, overinterpreting these things. In the first instance, and maybe the most important lesson, is that anything that Trump changed in the last 10 days, he can change in the next 10 days. Um, so all of this is subject to reversal. Uh, the second thing is that, and it's always a struggle with him, but if there has been any consistency in his approach to um, to international relations, it has been uh, a sense that China is cheating the United States, particularly on trade and economic issues. This has been, the, the, the trade issue particularly has been the sort of mobilizing effort of his political career and it is a little bit hard to believe that he is going to quite to abandon that even if he's willing to put it into abeyance for the uh north korean issue okay
0: so i'd like to probe a bit further what both his kind of deep story is and and the tactical changes and i'd love to hear from from you francois and angela on that as well but then after that also want to talk about what opportunities Trump's behaviour opens up for for Europeans in Asia. And finally, to think a bit more about the global system, which we've discussed on a lot of these podcasts. And one of the ideas that people came up with was of whether Europeans could work with China or other Asians to uphold that order. Um, And I know that you'll have strong views on that. But before we do that, let's uh, wallow a bit more in the latest news about Trumpland. Francois, how, how you interpreted both the kind of longer-term run-up to where we are now and also, you know, what's happened in the, in the recent uh, Xi Jinping-Donald uh, uh, Trump uh, loving in Mar-a-Lago?
2: I don't have a PhD in Trumpology, uh, but the one thing I know <laughs> is that on China, he promised that he would be unpredictable. So what would be surprising is if he became completely consistent and known to the Chinese. In a way in that deep fundamental way he's enacting exactly what he was saying he would change in the uh, China US relationship which had become completely uh, imprisoned uh, in 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 a vocabulary in terms in agreed uh, relations when we knew that the areas of 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 of, of contradictions were increasing uh, what has he done really uh, since he has taken office, and what have the Chinese done? Let's look at currency manipulation, for for example. There are very reliable indexes that tell us that roughly the Chinese manipulated the currency, mostly down, between 2010 and 2015. It was abating in 2016 as the campaign was going on, and for the first two months of 2017, lo and behold, the chinese push to reevaluate the currency not to push it down and foreign trade and, and, and their foreign trade even went negative uh, for the first time in recent history now let's not uh, get carried over in march in, in 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 it's going the other way again but i think there is a very good circumstantial evidence for trump to do what nearly every us president has done before him which is not respect campaign Compromises and go the other way. And so what we're seeing, admittedly, in a very uh, lyrical uh, fashion with those 144 science tweets, uh, is that he's reversing stuff that he said during the campaign. He's not the first to do so. The other major news that I see uh, is the decision to go tough on North Korea or at least to appear tough. And the most significant thing he has said is, look, Uh, I understand China doesn't have really much of an influence over North Korea. Don't worry, we'll take care of it by ourselves. It could be a bluff. Uh, Obviously, China is going to look for signs of consistency over time, but it's a major change. And if I look at the Chinese behavior, what really strikes me is that, contrarily to many comments we see, particularly in Western democracies, particularly in Europe— uh, where there's so much skepticism and so much total disbelief about Trump, they take him seriously. They take him seriously perhaps because they like to avoid risk. They take him seriously because they believe <coughs> that other uh, ways of dealing with them were probably lies, were hypocritical. They believe in opposition. Uh, and therefore, Xi Jinping has been moderating his stance uh especially in the past few days uh, since the strike on Syria. What happened over dinner at mar lago I wouldn't say was a love-in. When you're being told before eating a chocolate cake uh, that, you're, that, 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 that the U.S. just bombed Syria and tells you in retrospect, and you have 10 seconds to reply, that's a surprise. That's not the kind of thing that Xi being likes. He's essentially avoided this all his life. So I think Trump's process and, and tactics are novel part of which i admit as jeremy shapiro said uh, it's built on character and he often veers wide but it is a shock to the chinese and in many areas where they got used to being able to literally predict the united states they're in a bind right now and they're in a waiting mode on several of these issues
0: so angela you know there's two aspects to this unpredictability because one question is about the bilateral relationship with China which we had expected to be all about trade as Jeremy said but now seems to be more geopolitical and then there is also his relationship with other Asian countries like Japan and Korea that he was quite rude about during the election campaign and said that they should do more to defend themselves. But he also seems to be repositioning um, on that. How do you see the the kind of wider Asian frame for this Chinese um, policy that's coming out of the White House?
3: Yeah, um, I firstly agree with Francois that the Chinese seem to take him seriously, probably as compared to the West, And this, in turn, is also partly good news for other Asian countries and the rest of Asia. Because in the end, whether Trump uh, intended to do so or not, he did challenge China and China didn't react or at least didn't react as uh, a lot of people might have expected. Um, On the contrary, China remained quite calm and restrained in its response to, uh, to the US. So it is probably comforting for some Asian countries to know that China is still not yet at least willing to go full um, in a a full confrontation with the U.S. um, every time it is provoked in doing so. So this is probably then also could be a positive interpretation of Trump's, I'm not sure if one can call it strategy, it would be probably also very positive to call it a strategy but probably his uncertainty has actually led um china to show some weakness um towards other countries but
0: one of the interesting things though is that you know on the one hand um you know he's been unpredictable and he's kind of showing some tactical strength but he has kind of kicked out the main way that the u.s was trying to contain china and push back on china in asia which was the trans-pacific partnership this big economic arrangement and it's allowed china to go around asia offering to to play the role that the united states was going to play on the economic in in the economic space is that not something which is um uh severely undermining american power within asia
3: and this is exactly this is in the negative side of it and then also the positive interpretation of his policies, which is that in the end it is quite incoherent and withdrawing from TPP in Asia. I mean, there are many aspects to it that um, have something to do with level playing field and um, getting other Asian countries more integrated. Um, But it has also been... um, the U.S. would have played a forerunner role in setting standards um, on trade. And as such, um, this um, withdrawal is now missing, which means this is a lack for Asia as a whole, but it's also bad news for the Europeans.
1: I think that the, the point that Angela makes about incoherence is a really important one, because uh, since Trump took office, everybody's been searching for a strat- for what his strategy is. And, uh, and as Francois and Angela were saying, there, is, there are some emerging views about this amongst uh, the Chinese and other Asians. And in part now, there is this sort of view that the, the unpredictability is the strategy. And I think that's actually a sort of dangerous conclusion. The unpredictability is just unpredictability. And to the extent that it has any sort of strategy in the form at all, it's a domestic political strategy, and the uh, and so what you see is that the Trump presidency is is acquiring a uh, a, a perception in U.S. domestic politics as being too radical, being too um, uh, being too incompetent, and so there's an effort to sort of standardize it and there is an effort to shift between advisors. Uh, But this isn't being driven even by a desire to be unpredictable on the world stage. This is being driven by changes in domestic policy and a lack of real views on most foreign policy issues and a willingness even for the things that he does have views to, to compromise and go back on very firm campaign promises.
2: I think there is a major difference With the Obama administration, in the Obama administration, there were also very different views. And, you know, if you traveled in Asia, you could hear the complaint that uh, uh, Barack Obama's reassurances to Asians, whether it was about trade deals or whether it was about security, were always made in Asia and seldom in the U.S. That is that Barack Obama deep down knew that for a domestic audience, this was not so favorable. Uh, but the difference is that Obama had a lot of top-down control on the staff. It was very centralized. There was very, it was all very clipped and controlled. And it's clear that Trump's method is thoroughly anarchical, that he lets people uh, just wrench out and then reins them in or denies uh, them at the last minute. And so it gives an impression of chaos, and to some extent it is chaos, but it's also a way of moving forward, so i'm 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 still waiting uh to see whether the guy has enough sense uh to pull through some of the strategic issues or whether there is no learning curve that we you know just lob the ball from one end of the field to the other, and that applies to Asia, but it applies to other issues as well of course
0: so if we declare a strategic truce about whether he's a strategic genius with his unpredictability or if, if this is just uh, chaos um what does uh, this mean for Europe's priorities in Asia? Francois, maybe you could kind of um, help us yeah. make sense, both of whether there's kind of new space that's emerged as a result of TPP disappearing, um, what kinds of space there is to build relationships with, with different countries in the wake of Trump's uh, resetting of American Asia policy?
2: Something should have emerged. One could write a marvelous uh, strategy for Europe uh, right now. But as you know, Europe is disorganized, fascinated by the coming elections in several member states. Uh, Let's take China as an example. China has become polite with Europe since uh, President Trump was elected on November 9. Uh, It's become polite. Uh, It's become for multilateralism, in international law and reciprocity. At Davos, as Xi Jinping said, there you will never hear the word "multipolar" again. For example, uh, and Europe, in theory, should profit should use two opportunities. Once to one towards China, say, "Hey, you've got a big problem in the U.S. You should deal with us, uh, and you should make more concessions to avoid being isolated, and to you know go on being an exporting nation." But the truth is that the Chinese mostly talk to their toughest partner, not to their easiest partner. So Europe can only do that if it has carrots and sticks. And right now, perhaps because of the general perception of Donald Trump, perhaps because there is a crossfire uh, between what he said or his entourage has sometimes said about Germany and its trade surpluses, for example, I don't see the sticks. I only see talk about carrots And so long as the Chinese think that not much is going to happen with Europe, they'll turn their attention elsewhere. The other area, and that could be more serious, would be a deal with other Asians, but chiefly uh, the Japanese uh, and the Koreans on on a substitute to TPP, on something where Europe would be more open than the U.S. is. Not easy for Europeans if you think, not easy for the Commission in particular, uh, if you think that even a, a, a free trade agreement with Canada Uh, is viewed negatively by much of public opinion. So it's not easy to be a strategist uh, in Europe right now, but yes, there should be opportunities uh, for Europe to lead a little more where uh, the Trump administration is either isolationist or disorganized. uh, And there should be also room uh, for playing a game uh, between Beijing and Washington.
0: So maybe, Angela, you could come in a bit on on one aspect of the Beijing-Washington bit, which is the whole question about um, free trade, because you're sitting in Berlin. Germany is obviously deeply nervous about some of the... Um, protectionist tendencies in the Trump administration, the idea of border adjustment taxes and tariffs and things like that. Um, people have talked about possibly teaming up with other big export nations like Germany and, sorry, like China and Japan against the uh, Trump administration. I mean, how, how much is that seriously being talked about in Berlin?
3: Well, it is a big issue because economy is obviously um, our most precious um, interest. And I mean, first of all, when it comes to China, Germany has been undergoing a shift on its own. Um, so Germany in itself is has already been before the Trump election in a debate on protectionist versus free trade issues, um, such as Chinese investment coming into Germany, or Europe as a whole, and then also the um, market situation in China in itself. Nevertheless, Germany, of course, is still, despite this discussion, much more open and will remain much more open, and is nowadays even called the leader of free trade, um, and uh, will remain open towards foreign investment as well. Um, So there are very high concerns about... um, the signals coming from the US to turn even more towards um, protectionism, trade protection and so on and so forth. Um, On the other hand, I think it depends on to what degree, and this comes, and then this incoherence comes in again, but it depends on to what degree Trump actually um, is going to be provocative and confrontational towards China. And um, because I think some of his claims are actually plausible in the case of China, um, even in Germany's view, but then on the other hand, if he overdoes it, does it, for example, um, his punitive tariffs that he announced, um, that would also threaten Germany's economy in in multiple ways, actually, not only if it comes to China, um, but also when it comes to its trade in the US. Um, So... There is a big discussion, but um, following what Francois said in the end about the opportunities, I think one of the opportunities that Germany is at least already trying to take is to use this this vacuum and this momentum of uncertainty um, to define on its own um, what kind of China policy as a whole in the region it wants wants to take. And it's going to focus much more on trade. Um, Beyond China, I think the signals have already been there. And I think um, Germany would probably also be in a position to give um, the equivalent push within the EU to do so. So I think um, there are opportunities much more than we might see at the moment.
0: So um, Jeremy, how do you see the big picture? Because, well, you know, it's obviously a bit confusing. We thought that Trump was going to do a reverse Kissinger and ally with Russia against China, and we were all kind of getting ready for that. And then some people were saying that Europeans should align with with China against, uh, against Trump to defend the international system. Um, you know, that's obviously what Xi Jinping was hoping to encourage with his Davos speech. But where do you see the big picture great power relations emerging out of all of this uh
1: yeah i'm certainly um confused it sort of reminds me of the way that they used to tell you to to listen to beatles songs this is you should probably take acid first if you really want to understand them and i'm sort of starting to believe that that's the best way to uh, to understand trump's foreign policy as well um so i'm thinking of trying that but i haven't quite gotten there yet i think um that from my try this at home yeah From my perspective, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Francois and I have been having for a few months now a sort of debate on how, on how um, Europe should deal with China on, given the existence of Trump. And it, it occurs to me that the, that the essence of our difference is that Francois is very focused on managing the European relationship with China and therefore wants to instrumentalize Trump. And I'm very focused on managing the European relationship with the United States and therefore want to instrumentalize China. Um, and it, in, in it, from my perspective, uh, the problem that Europe faces with Trump is specifically his unpredictability and incoherence. What we've learned from the last couple of weeks is that he can be hemmed in, he can be... He can respond to events, and actually he doesn't have strong views, so if you present him with structural constraints, he often will uh, surrender to them. And so it seems to me that if you want to manage your relationship, if Europe wants to manage its relationship with Trump, and of course this is subject to all the same caveats that Francois had about there not necessarily being a Europe on this issue, but if, you, if, the, if it does, it, it really makes sense to create a sort of formidable front of uh, strengthening the global order and instrumentalizing China as much, in, as, much as you can in doing that. Um, but I think it's, it's become a much more confused issue. And I think given the, European, um, the lack of European unity on the question, given, as Angela said, their, their much greater focus on sort of individual economic relationships with China... I think it's gonna be very difficult to imagine that happening.
0: Two quick side remarks on this. After your two side remarks, you'll do a full frontal rebuttal of the Shapiro doctrine. No,
2: no, 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 I won't, (laughs) not at all. I would agree with him in fact on his last, under one circumstance for for example, imagine for us the worst in economic terms is that Donald Trump in a few weeks or months finally signs a bilateral investment treaty with China after having scuttled this TPP, and while we haven't taken advantage of this to advance our own request to China on our own bilateral investment treaty, that would be perhaps incredible, but it would prove that if you talk tough to China and if you act tough, you might get results. And that would be really hellish uh, for Europeans and a triumph and a, a trade triumph for Trump. The second remark I want to make very quickly. Uh, Is about uh, Angela's uh, notes on on Germany, trade, the fear about the protectionist U.S. I've talked recently with somebody who was fairly close to the exchanges between Angela Merkel uh, and Donald Trump, and I got the impression for that that Angela Merkel was absolutely unfazed and, in fact, (coughs) quite satisfied that she appeared publicly uh, to be distant from Trump Uh, it would actually help her in the German elections in the fall not to appear to be too close to Donald Trump. So, you know, domestic considerations exist in the U.S. They exist in Europe, too.
3: Yeah, I I, I can confirm that. (laughs) It was kind of seen as a positive sign. So we're now
0: um, sort of coming to the end of this conversation. Um, Maybe we can end with some sort of policy recommendations for for Europeans out of all this. It'd be great to hear if you were writing a memo for... I'm not sure who you'd write it for, though. That's one of the questions. Like, whose telephone number you'll be calling? But imagine you're writing a memo for, for Donald Tusk and Angela Merkel... And um, uh, the new French president and 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 um, and and, and uh, the EU institutions. What two or three things would you each recommend? Who wants to go first? Uh, Jeremy looks like he's dying to to, to 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 jump in.
1: I'm dying to jump somewhere. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, look. I mean, I think it's I think it's very difficult, and I don't envy the task. But for me, when you're faced with. Uh, this kind of unpredictability on core issues, the key thing is to understand what you believe and to stick stick very tightly to them. And I think when it comes to, and, and here I want to focus on trade because I still believe that Donald Trump will come back to that as the place where he's going to have to find his signature initiatives, that they really need to be Uh, using the sort of breathing space they have to create a formidable front of institutionalization of the trade regime. And and it might be worth trying to see whether China is up for that, because I think if China is still concerned, and I'm sure they still are, about the unpredictability of Donald Trump, they're going to want to be able to use this breathing space to do that as well. Okay. Uh, Angela, why don't you come next?
3: Um, I reinforce what Jeremy said and um, would also call on Europeans to um, focus on trade issues, but also to try to jump into the vacuum um, that Trump has created. Um, And beyond that, also there's a vacuum to talk on security issues, for example, and to do it really fast. Okay. And Francois, last word to you.
2: I would say first, hemming China on Syria Uh, use the fact that Xi Jinping was clearly surprised and, of course, to try and extract from the Chinese that they move away from the Russians on this. If they don't completely contradict them, at least not support them, especially when they're going to be the next vote at the UN. Uh, And uh, on Trump, I would say keep talking to the entourage, keep talking to the people who are going to emerge on top There are quite a few generals and strategic advisors who are professionals who seem to be emerging. Uh, And beware, I agree completely with Jeremy on one point, which is, frankly, in the end, uh, U.S. bargaining on on trade and economic interests often supersedes other issues when it comes to Asia. And so let's not get lost in the discussion. We should be moving much more strongly towards Japan, towards China, towards Korea towards india uh, than we're doing now at the uh, eu level
0: right i'm not sure i can cope with all this violent agreement i was uh, expecting a major disagreement between the
1: three of you but hopefully the eu will what can i say that came around we'll to my position in the last few <laughs> days apparently
0: let's hope the eu does as good a job of uh, agreeing uh, a, a common stance and, and listening to, to all of your advice we have one more thing to do before the end of the podcast which is the bookshelf segment Who wants to go first on on what's on their bookshelves?
2: I have just a very modest uh, thing to suggest because I've been reading an e-book, which is not even for sale. I discovered that e-books, Penguin e-books, for example, can be banned from distribution in in the continental uh, Europe, so I have to use a VPN and pretend I'm American, (laughs) download it. But this is how I've been reading yesterday... Uh, Bobo Lowe's new small book called A Wary Embrace. It's an updating on the axis of convenience that he wrote 10 years ago and China Russia relationships. And Bobo makes the case, not completely convincingly, I must say, uh, that it's still only about convenience, that the two are deeply suspicious, that it's not going to go anywhere, and therefore that we have a future in separating them. But it's, it's I, 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 disagree with some elements in the book but it's a very useful updating of what he did uh, 10 years ago and that became
0: famous because of the title okay very good Jeremy do you want to go
1: next uh sure and welcome to America uh Francois we're really glad to have you um (laughs) uh yeah so my my book I think probably unsurprisingly for people who've heard me on this on this podcast is as usual quite solipsistic and it's uh Dan Dresner's new book, um, the, ideas the Ideas Industry, industry um, which is really talking about the shifting role of uh, public intellectuals in um, in American politics, I suppose, but I think also even globally. And he takes the position that um, that the public intellect that we no longer really are dominated by public intellectuals, as he defines them, and now that we're we're now dominated by thought leaders. And the difference between a public intellectual and a thought leader is that a public intellectual is is attached to um, is attached to a sort of wide array array of public concerns from a specific moral stance, whereas a thought leader is essentially an evangelist who's trying to promote a very uh, a strong narrow agenda. And that this has changed the way that we tend to think about issues, and it's both a reflection and a cause of the polarized policy debate within the United States. So I don't know, maybe it was because it was sort of about where I work, but I found it to be a fascinating book. What about you, Angela?
3: Um, I'm reading a book that would probably help someone to write a PhD about Trumpology, um, and you three surely know it. It's Sinclair um, Lewis' It Can't Happen Here, um, which was actually, plays out in the 1930s um, and has been basically resurrected now because it has so much um, resonance with contemporary politics, um, meaning the Trump phenomenon. Um, So Sinclair's description is very similar to what is happening now um, as uh, the character in his book uses the same arguments to win an election and um, uses, for example, media in the same way, although back then it wasn't uh, Twitter, it was the radio. And, um, yeah, so I thought it's time to try to um, get into Trumpology.
0: Okay, and I'm going to mention a book I read a few months ago, but it kind of seems strangely relevant to the politics of Asia, which is a book called Economic Interdependence and War by Dale C. Copeland. And what Dale Copeland has done is gather a huge amount of data about economic relationships and war over many decades. And his basic conclusion is that, and he's trying to answer the age-old question about whether interdependence uh, stops countries going to war with each other or, or whether it encourages them to go to war with each other. And his big contribution to the debate is that what matters most is whether countries are optimistic or pessimistic about the bilateral relationships between the two countries so if they think that the economic opportunities are going to grow over time then economic interdependence uh, will pacify countries in their relationships with each other but if they think that they're going to be on the wrong end of of an unlevel playing field or that the relationship is going to get worse in economic terms, then that economic interdependence can actually increase conflict. Anyway, to be discussed and to be lived in our relations uh, between countries in Asia. This brings our podcast to a conclusion. If you've enjoyed it, please do tell your friends about it. It would be very, very helpful to us if you could give us a review and a ranking on iTunes, because that seems to be the biggest driver of traffic towards this website it'd be a shame if your friends and acquaintances weren't able to listen to the world in 30 minutes as well you could also tweet about it write about it on facebook and if you've got any comments about the podcast or you want to give us your views or suggest future themes or guests on the podcast please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu we will be putting links to many of the brilliant writings of our panel and the books that they recommended on our website, which is uh, www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Jeremy Shapiro, Francois Godemont, Angela Stanzel and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Boulin Goimi.